me to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation in chapter 2. Revelation 2. Father God, we just ask God your blessing, God, to be upon these offerings and tithes today. Jesus, multiply it. Use it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 2. Does everybody have that? Say praise the Lord if you do. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Or really it should be lampstands. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. And has found them liars. And has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from where or from whence thou art fallen. And repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy lampstand out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Father, I just pray right now, Lord Jesus, your blessing upon this message today. Thank you for your awesome word, Lord. Speak to everybody that's here in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Praise God. The first church of is going to be Ephesus. We're going to be dealing with that this morning. And Jesus is standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, or literally seven literal candlesticks. It's not like we see on this chart up here where he's just in the middle of one candlestick. He is literally in the midst of seven individual lampstands or menorahs. The Bible says that he is walking in the midst of them. What we have here is we have a revelation of Jesus in the church. A revelation of Jesus in the church. We have the king reigning over his realm. When you talk about the kingdom of God, you're talking about the realm of the king and his kingdom. So we have Jesus here in the midst of those that he, hath, he has made kings and priests to. Amen. When you talk about the seven churches, you're talking about the revelation of Jesus in the church. So he is revealing himself in and through us today. Do you believe that? As you go through the book of Revelation, you will see the Lord not adding to the church, but taking things out of it. That keep him from being seen or manifest in their midst. That's why it says concerning Ephesus. He says write these things. Saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. Who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks or lampstands. When you talk about the Lord walking in the midst of the church. Go with me to Deuteronomy 23. 
We see God in Deuteronomy 23 walking in the midst of his people and what he does when he walks in their midst. Deuteronomy 23, verse 14. 23, 14, it says this. For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp. What's he doing there? To deliver thee. And to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy. That he see no unclean thing in thee. And turn away from thee. So when it says that he's walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He's walking in the midst of the church to deliver the church from their enemies. To give you victory over your enemies. But not only that. But to get rid of the uncleanness out of the church. To get out of anything that is unholy from their midst. And so what the Lord does throughout the book of Revelation. Is not so much add to the church things. But take away from that church things. Unholy things. Okay. So he's walking in the midst of the church this morning. He's walking in the midst of us today. He's walking in the midst of this church today. And he is evaluating you. When he comes like this, in his kingdom move like this, he comes to evaluate his people. So he is here right now. He's, an, he's evaluating every heart. He's evaluating every walk. He's evaluating everything that is in the midst of us right now. And his purpose is to get rid of anything that's unholy out of us so that, we can, uh, so that he can be seen in us or revealed in us or manifest in us. Amen. Do you understand that? And the way he does that is by the work of the cross. He gets rid of the evil by the finished work of the cross. And so when we come to the book of Ephesus, then what we're going to see is something very interesting. Is that you've got in this, of course, this passage where he's walking in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. There are seven churches. Seven churches. The number seven is the number of completion. Okay. So what I'm going to try to do this morning is I'm going to show you what Ephesus, the focus of Ephesus. Why did God choose these particular seven churches? Why didn't, he, why didn't he pick the church in Jerusalem? Why did he pick these particular churches beginning with Ephesus? He did it for a reason because they portray creation. They portray creation. And they show us that God is going to decreate things decreate or remove the old creation so that the new creation can be seen he's going to take away what Adam did in the fall and restore back to his people what was lost in the garden he's going to restore paradise so he's going to go through a decreation process in the book of Revelation, okay? Are you with me here? So there are seven churches. There are seven days of creation. There are seven feasts. There are seven epistles of Paul. Seven epistles of John in the book of Revelation. Paul and John both had a revelation of Jesus. They had the same revelation. That's why you have seven epistles, church epistles of Paul. 
and seven epistles of John to the book of Revelation. You with me here? Okay, you're with me at this point. Seven, day, seven churches, seven days of creation, seven feasts, seven epistles of Paul, seven epistles of John in the book of Revelation, and seven kingdom parables. So they're all laying over on top of each other to show you how God is going to decreate so that the new creation can be seen. So that he can remove what Adam did in the fall and reestablish in a new creation the garden of God in the earth. Hello, garden of God. And not only that, but there are seven history, Old Testament history layouts that we'll look at, look at as we go through this. So, first church. I'm only going to deal with one this morning. Okay, and we're going to try to look at each one of these things so you'll understand what I'm talking about. So in Revelation, if you want to go back there, he writes to the church of Ephesus. Now, knowing this, that the Lord is in the midst of Ephesus, this golden candlestick, lampstand. He's in the midst of her to deliver her from her enemies and to remove anything that is unholy in the midst of her so that he can be seen are revealed through that church. See, what keeps the Lord from appearing in us is all the junk that's in us. See, he doesn't have to add anything else to us. It is finished. It's, his work is already finished. He doesn't have to add anything to me. What hinders him from appearing in us is the junk that's in us. The unholy stuff that's in us. The old Adamic nature stuff that's in us. That's what keeps him from, being, uh, from appearing in us. That's what hinders his appearing in you today. It's all the junk you've got in you and all the junk I've got inside of me. Amen. Are you here today? So he wants to appear. Now, when you look at Ephesus then in this church, we have the Lord talking to this church. Ephesus literally means to lose hold. To lose hold. They're losing their hold on God. They are backsliding. Are you with me here? And he, he says to the church of Ephesus, which means again to lose your grip or to lose hold. Let me go. Okay. I'll get back to Revelation here. He says this. He says he's got the seven stars in his right hand. He walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks or lampstands. He says, I know your works. So he comes in here today in our church, just like he did in that church. And he says, I know your works. He says, I know your labor. Amen. He starts talking to them. He points out the good things about them. He says, I know your works. He says, I know your labor and your endurance or your patience. Okay. So this church is a working church it's a laboring church and it's a church that endures it just keeps on keeping on and then he says also he says you cannot bear them which are evil another good point you cannot bear them that are evil and thou hast tried them you've put them to the test which say they are apostles see he's commending them for this He's commending them for laboring and for working and having patience and, and hating that which is evil. Not bearing that which is evil. Not allowing evil to stay in the camp. And he also says you put a 
apostles or so-called apostles to the test to see if they were real apostles or not. And God is commending them for their testing of people. They're putting people to the test. He's commending them for that. Amen. He said, you've tested them that say they're apostles and are not and has found them liars. See, there's a lot of people saying a lot of things. There are people who think they're called to preach. They say they're called to preach. They say they're called a pastor. They say they're apostles. They say they're prophets. But the church's responsibility is to put them to the test to see if they really are genuinely called. Church is not a place where you just let evil come in and sin come in and set up camp. That's not the way God runs his church. You don't bear with evil. You deal with it. You get it out of your life. You get it out of the church. And, and people who, who come in here and claim to have gifts of the Spirit or apostles or whatever, you put that to the test to see if that's really from God or not. You have a responsibility for morality and ethics and holiness as a church. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so he's commending them for that. And then he says in verse 3, he said, and has borne and has patience, endurance, for my name's sake. They were a people of the name. See, they didn't just have patience and endurance, okay, as a whole. But they had patience and endurance for the name. They were people of the name, right? He goes on and says this, You've, and has labored and has not fainted. You haven't quit. You're not a quitter. But you are on the verge of backsliding. You are on the verge of losing your grip. Verse 4. After commending them for all these awesome things. Then he says nevertheless. Nevertheless. See the Lord is never going to settle for less. He will never settle for less. He's always calling the church to a higher level, to a higher ground. He's always calling me. He's always calling you. He never looks at your life and says, man, you don't need anything. He comes in the midst of you to commend you for what you are doing, but then say, nevertheless to you. Because he's not going to settle for anything but perfection. Did you hear what I said? He is not some weak-backed Savior. He is a holy God. He's a king who reigns over a kingdom. We are his vassals. We are his servants. We saw the preamble last week. Now we see the prologue of that covenant document to his people. And that document to his people reveals their needs. You are the king's servant. So the king says to his realm, to his kingdom, this is what you're doing right, but this is where you're missing it. He comes in here today. He says, you're doing things, some things right, but there's some things you got to get straightened out inside of you. You've got to get some stuff out of you. You've got to get some unholy stuff out of you so that he can be seen. So he's not adding today. He's taking away. What is hindering his appearance? Amen. Are you with me today? He goes on and he, he says this. He said, but nevertheless, even though you haven't fainted and you've been busy, 
and you've been working and you love his name and you've tried false apostles, you're doctrinally correct. Got that. You got the truth. You got the doctrine right. Amen. You've been working for him. You've been spreading the gospel. Doctrine's right. Your evangelistic move is, is good. You're not letting evil come in your church. That's good. You're walking holy before me. So you're doctrinally correct. You're holy. You walk holy before me. You are evangelistic. And you labor and you don't faint. You keep on serving me no matter what happens. Did you hear me? So I ask you today as a church, are you doctrinally correct? Are you holy unto God? Are you laboring for the Lord and serving the Lord? If you are, God bless you. But the problem with this church is this. So you can be doctrinally correct. You can have the truth. Know all about it. Hallelujah. I mean, you can quote one God scriptures all day long and Jesus name baptism scriptures all day long. And you can quote the Bible from cover to cover. Hallelujah. Know his name and love his name, but still have God come to you and tell you nevertheless. You are losing your grip. You are slowly backsliding. I'm asking you today as a church, are you losing your grip? You got the doctrine right? You're walking in holiness before the Lord? You hate evil? Praise God. But do you love him today? Do you have a relationship with him today? Or are you losing that love? That fervency, that fire, fiery uh, passion for the Lord. Do you still have a passion for God? See, that's the sad part about it. A lot of times people come into the church and they get the truth, you know, get doctrinally correct. They found out that their old systems were not preaching the truth. And, and they come in the church and they get doctrinally correct and start walking in holiness before the Lord and start serving the Lord. But all of a sudden they start losing their for him they lose their first love let's go over to the kingdom parables and let's look at the first parable because it parallels Ephesus hallelujah amen Matthew 13 Jesus says this now Ephesus parallels this one it's the first kingdom parable. Ephesus is the first church. He said, the same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him. So that he went into a ship and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in a parable saying, behold, a sower went forth to sow. So now he's going to show us that the kingdom of God is the growing of a garden. The growing of a garden. In fact, when Jesus is standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, those golden candlesticks are nothing more than an olive tree. They are the garden of God that he's moving through, just like he did in the book of, Revela in the book of Genesis. He walked in the garden, amen, to evaluate 
And so we have a garden of God, the church, the kingdom of God is likened to a garden here that's growing. And he says this. He said, this sower goes forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. Verse 6, and when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and thorns sprung up and choked them, but other fell onto good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And he says to the churches, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So we have parallels here. Now let's, let's see the parallels here. This sower goes forth to sow. Okay? He's sowing the good seed of the Word of God. He goes forth and he sows, and the Bible says some falls on the wayside, the hard ground. Some falls on, in the stony ground, and some falls among thorns, and then some falls among good grounds. And the good ground produces 30, 60, and 100 fold. This garden grows. The problem is not with the seed or the word of God, and really... The problem is not even with the soil. The problem is the soil has not been cultivated. Because the soil in the wayside area and the soil in the stony ground and the soil in the thorns, if it were cultivated, is the same soil that's in the field. The reason why there's a problem with the soil is it hasn't been cultivated. It hasn't been worked. The thorns haven't been removed. The rocks haven't been taken away from it. The hard ground has been packed. It needs to be broken up. Left to itself, then the thorny ground's not worth anything. The hard ground's not worth anything. And the stony ground is not worth anything. But if you cultivate it, it has the same potential as the rest of the field, the good ground. The Bible says, now watch this. He sows the seed. The seed goes out there and it falls on the ground. Just like today, as I'm sowing the seed of the Word of God, it's falling on all kinds of ground this morning. The seed is falling on good ground this morning. Some of y'all are going to take the Word of God and you're going to grow your garden. Is going to grow and you're going to become fruitful and reproduce in the kingdom of God. Some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. Different degrees of productivity in God's kingdom. There's some of you out there that is the hard ground. The word of God is still going forth this morning. It's still being sowed. But some of you are hard, hard ground. Some of you today are thorny ground. The cares of this life are choking the word out today. Amen. Stony ground listeners. Are you want me to tell you what that means? We'll go to the word of God and we'll find out. Let's see here. He's going to reveal them the mysteries of the kingdom. Verse 15 of chapter 13. For this people's heart is wax gross. And their ears are dull of hearing. And their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes. And hear with their ears. And should understand with their hearts and should be converted. 
and I should heal them. See, God's purpose when he comes to uncover unholiness and sin is always restoration. That's his purpose is to restore the garden. If he comes in here and he says there's hard ground, there's stony ground, and there's thorns in our midst, he tells you that to know that you can be cultivated and there can be a change. His purpose is redemption. His purpose is restoration. He doesn't come in here this morning just pointing a finger at you just because he enjoys walking on you. He comes in here this morning revealing the unholiness and the stuff that's hindering his appearance so that he can appear so you can get rid of some of that stuff. Some of the rock and some of the hardness and some of the thorns that are in your life so that you can become the good ground that grows up in a beautiful garden of God. Amen. Are you here today? Verse 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. So if you're a wayside person this morning, as the seed is going forth, the devil came to church with you. The fowls of the air are swarming to you right now to gather the word of God as soon as it, that word goes forth to hit your heart. Before it ever gets inside of you, in, deep inside of you, the devil wants to come and sweep that away. So you don't even get it. You hear it, but you don't hear it. You hear it, but you don't hear it. And so the devil, you need to be aware of today that the devil is here today to take the word of God away from you before it gets inside of your heart. He wants you to be the wayside ground. Verse 20, but he that receiveth seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word and anon with joy receiveth it. Right? The first guy heard the word, but they didn't understand the word. Because they didn't understand the word. Or really, listen, it's not like, well, I just don't understand. They didn't want it bad enough. They didn't want to understand bad enough to understand it. It's not an indictment of ignorance here. The, the word went forth. The problem is when it went forth, you said, I don't understand it. You know why? See, that's serious when you say, I don't understand it. Because that shows you are a wayside here. If the word is being explained, not just proclaimed, but explained. And you still don't get it. It's not the seed's fault. And it's not the sower's fault. It's that you don't want to understand bad enough to understand it. It's not an indictment of ignorance. Well, I'm just stupid. No, you're not stupid. You are very highly intelligent beings that have the ability to understand the Word of God. But you've got to want to understand it with everything in you. If you don't, if you come in here with an I don't care attitude and you don't value this Word, when it goes forth, you're not going to understand it because you didn't value it enough to meditate upon it, to receive it into your spirit. And then you let the devil come and snatch that treasure away from you because you're too preoccupied with I don't understand. Engage 
your spirit, engage your heart, engage your ears, engage your mind to understand it, to receive it. And don't let the devil come and take it away. You are actively participating in the delivery of the word and the receiving of the word and the responding to that word and the understanding and application of that word. You are to take that for yourself and do something with it. If you are not, then you walk in and say, I just don't understand it. Mm, it's, not the, it's not the word's fault. It's not the sower's fault. You are indicting yourself. Praise the Lord. But then he talks about this next seed that falls on the stony ground. And it says that he, when the word goes forth, he receives it with joy. Woo! You know? We see him come in here. Word of God goes forth. Wow! Excited about the word. Right? But because they're stony ground, the Bible says something happens to that word. Are y'all still there? But he that received the seed in the stony place, same as he that heareth, heareth the word, and anon with joy receives it. Yet hath he no root in himself. Did you get that? No root in himself. The Bible says, but dureth for a while. Coming in excited, but they're not going to be there long. Because they don't have nothing inside of them. No root inside of them. They endure for a while. All right. Do you see that word dureth? Endureth? Well, see, Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, you have had patience. You're enduring. All right. Watch. There's connections here. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. So this person gets offended at the word of God when he starts going under pressure, under trials, under testing, under persecution. When the Lord comes to his life to get rid of stuff out of him, to get rid of the rocks out of him. Then he gets offended at the word of God. And the Bible says he just makes it for a little while and pretty soon he, he goes away. He does not last. He loses his grip. He's Ephesus. He's losing his first love. These are things that cause a man to lose their first love. You get that? Okay, so the stony-hearted person then gets excited when they hear the word. But when persecution comes, they don't last. They fall by the wayside because they get offended. Always walking around with a spirit of offense. In verse 22. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this age, this world, and the deceitfulness of riches. We talked about it Wednesday night. They worship mammon, the God mammon, which means if they don't have enough in the account, then mammon, their God didn't put enough in their account and so they walk around with anxiety and fear and in what they do then is offer an offering to the God mammon so we have the same here or here in this word this is the Bible 
He receives seed among the thorns. He that heareth the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. His garden dries up. Did you get that? He loses his first love. So you go through these, these verses here and you see the wayside ground person, why he lost his first love. The stony ground, why he lost his first love. And then the thorny ground, why he lost his first love. It parallels the church of Ephesus. So what you have is the devil who comes and takes the seed away. You have an enemy today. Okay. The devil comes and takes the seed away. And then you have the flesh. And then you have the world. The world, the devil, and the flesh is your enemy. Try to take away from you. Try to spoil the garden of God. Try to strip the garden of God. Try to make you barren. But you are the garden of God. And you have to be aware of what tries to come. Things that come to try to stop the entrance of the word. And the growth that it would produce. You have to be aware of what's happening to your heart. You can't let your heart get shallow. You can't let your heart get hard. You can't let the cares of this life take over your heart. You've got to manage. You've got to be like Adam who was placed over the garden of God. To, to keep the garden, to, to till it, to keep it, to cultivate it. You've got to cultivate your heart. You've got to break it up. You've got to break up the fallow ground. You've got to pray. You've got to fast. You've got to make sure anything tries to get a hold of your heart or gets inside of you that you don't let that get in there. You break up the fallow ground. You keep the garden of God. You keep evil out of the garden. You don't let the devil get in your garden. You don't let hard-heartedness get in your garden. You don't let the cares of this life get in your garden. You, you are set like Adam to watch over the garden of God and not allow that to get in that place, the garden of God or paradise. Don't let him in your paradise. Don't let him in your garden. God has is, God is first put the angel, the church, the pastor over the church to make sure that uh, they get the word of God and to make sure that, that that man warns the church that there's worldliness getting hold of you or there's the cares of this life are getting hold of you. and The devil is attacking you to take the word from you, you know, or your flesh is dominating your thinking. Or the world is taking control of you. You're going after it. So the set man in the house is raised up by God to warn you to be like an Adam over the garden. But you have a responsibility yourself to keep your garden. Keep your garden. And I'm telling you right now, it's work to have a garden. You got to plow up the shallow, you got to plow up the wayside ground. You got to get rid of the rocks that's inside of you, the hardness that's inside of you. You got to get rid of the thorns that are growing in your garden. You got to pull the weeds up. God's walking in your garden today. He's checking it out. He's evaluating the garden. And you know what? He comes here to pull the weeds up and the thorns and throw the rocks out of it. You have a, responsible, a, a responsibility as the caretaker over the garden, the husbandman over the garden. To make sure that the garden is growing and producing and flourishing and multiplying. It's beautiful. 
You have to hear this word today. If you don't take care of your garden, can I tell you something? What do you have to do to be lost? Not one thing. You know why? Because if you just don't do anything, the garden is going to be taken take over by rocks and by fowls of the air and by thorns in the garden. If you're not out there cultivating and working on yourself, reading the Bible, reading the Word of God, and, and praying and fasting and coming to church and being a soul winner and loving Jesus and making sure nothing comes to, to take your grip off of Him, your love for Him, taking your relationship from Him away, you are responsible to not let that happen. Give God some praise. So you are God's husbandman. You are his garden. You are the garden of God. You are in a sense placed where Adam was placed. To keep the garden. That means to watch it. Be on guard. When it says keep the garden. It don't just mean you know to plow it and till it. It means you got to keep up on guard. That uh, hey there might be an enemy. Try to come in there and steal something out of that garden so it says that he tilled and he kept the garden he was on guard making sure the enemy didn't come into his territory the problem is he failed the problem is he let the enemy into come on somebody that in a, that spiritual place to talk to his woman hello somebody and so that's why the Bible says the Lord is walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Just like he watched, walked in the midst of them in the garden. In the spirit of the day. And he said, Adam, where art thou? Because I got to find you, Adam. I got to find where you are so I can get rid of you. I've got to banish you, Adam. I've got to get rid of the old Adam because sin has come into the garden. It has come into paradise. So I've got to get rid of the old Adam. I've got to cast him out of this garden. I've got to banish him away. So that a new paradise can be restored. And a new creation of God can come in the place of this creation that has been affected by the fall of man. Are you getting this point? That's why, if, I don't know if you caught this, at the end of this uh, message to the church of Ephesus, he said, if you overcome, I'll give you the paradise of God he said I'll give you the garden of God so Matthew 13 we see the garden of God and the things that try to come into that garden and destroy that garden but the Lord is walking in the midst of his garden this morning and he's warning he's telling you to watch out for those things that would cause you to be unfruitful and only one out of the four only one person out of the four that you that you may preach the word of God. Only one out of four are going to receive that word. And that word goes deep down. And it comes forth and produces fruit. It, it, the garden grows there. There's productivity there. Oh, hello, somebody. And so this parable parallels it. Are you with me still? Verse 23. But he that receives seed. It's a garden terminology. Into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it. Which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. They understand their purpose in the earth is to reproduce 
Jesus in the earth or to let Jesus reproduce himself in this earth realm so there can be a paradise of God and a revealing of Jesus in their midst. But there's a lot of stuff trying to hinder his appearance in all of your lives. You have to be aware of what's going on. You have to be a true angel of God. You have to be somebody that's guarding the gate of the paradise of your life. You men are set in your house to be spiritual leaders, to be spiritual atoms in your house. When stuff starts to come in your house, say, get out of here in the name of Jesus. You are to pray over your family, over your wife, and over your children if you've got children. You're not supposed to be the one that's carnal and lukewarm and half backslid and losing your grip on God. You've lost your first love. Yeah, you know the doctrine. You know holiness, but you've lost your passion. And you're not guarding your garden, your house. And all kinds of stuff's coming in there. All kinds of filth's coming in there. All kinds of uncleanness is coming in there. All kinds of unholiness. And the Lord is walking in your house to get rid of the stuff that's there. And I praise God for it. Give the Lord praise. So Ephesus had a lot of awesome things going for him. Hallelujah. They had the word of God. Doctrine. Sower sowing the seed. Angels watching over that garden of Ephesus. Protecting them from some of these things, you know. Hallelujah. But they had lost their grip. Things got a hold of them. They started loving things, other things, the world, the devil, the flesh, more than they loved God. They lost their focus. And so the Lord tells them, he says, because of that, he said, if you don't repent and do the first works, he said, I'm going to come and remove your light from you. So we have the seven churches and we have the seven kingdom parables. And now the Lord takes us to the first day of creation. And the first day of creation, he said, are you with me here? He said, let there be light on the first day. And to the first church, he says, I'm going to remove your light. You're not hearing me, are you? See, there's a decreation that the Lord is trying to, to bring about here in the earth. And he's put the true light in his church. He's the true light in the midst of his church. But he said, the light's about to go on, go off in your new creation house. When what I'm, what I'm going to be doing is removing the old creation and restoring the garden of God. Do you get the point? And this church here, Ephesus, is the only church that God says he's going to remove their candlestick from them. He doesn't tell any of the other six churches he's going to take their candlestick away. He doesn't tell any of the other churches that he's going to remove their light. Why is that? Because this church portrays the first day of creation where God said, let there be light. Give God some praise. The first day of creation, first parable of the kingdom, first church, all parallel each other. Are you getting the point? Next thing I want to talk to you about is the seven feasts and how they overlay here. The number one feast is the feast of Passover. 
And the Passover is the cross. It's where Jesus' blood was shed. He is the Passover lamb. So the first feast of the seven feasts is Passover. But connected to Passover is unleavened bread. And that's when you go in your house. That's when you make sure there's no leaven in your house. You get rid of all the leaven out of your house and you throw it out of your house. So the Lord's walking in the midst of his church, his garden, his house, his temple garden, if you will. He's walking in there as the Passover lamb who shed his blood for them. And by that work, they can overcome. They over, come on somebody. Jesus said this in Revelation 12. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So we have Passover here in this chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. Passover, the blood is what gets rid of the stuff. The blood, the finished work, is what gets rid of the sin. It, the blood is what makes me overcome. And that's Passover. And connected to the feast of Passover is the unleavened bread. And here comes the Savior in the midst of that church. And he's getting rid of the leaven out of that church. He's getting rid of the old Adam out of that church. He's getting rid of the stuff out of that church. The sin out of that church. Cleaning the church up. Cleaning the house up. And that's what he's doing right now. Are you with me? And the book of Revelation is laid out according to the feast. Are y'all awake? Next thing I want to tell you about is that John had seven letters to seven churches. The apostle Paul had seven church epistles. And if you were to count them, first and second Corinthians, first and Thessalonians, you would come up with more. But just Thessalonian epistles, Corinthian epistles, Romans, you got me here? She also had seven church epistles. So that the revelation that John got in the book of Revelation is the same revelation that Paul got in his seven epistles. So when John writes to the seven churches of Asia Minor and, and dealing with their problems... The seven church epistles of Paul can be laid out on them, and they had the same problems. Now, when you look at the church of Ephesus, Paul wrote an epistle called the Epistle to the Ephesians. And his focus there is love. And here he said to the Ephesian church, you have lost your first love. You're doctrinally correct. You walk in holiness. You love my name, but you've lost your first love. So to the church, or to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, he talks to them about the love relationship. Give God some praise. When you look at the tabernacle, there are seven pieces of furniture. The first piece of furniture that you will see is the altar. And so God here is calling them to the altar of repentance to understand the finished work of the cross. Are you with me today? Hallelujah. Give God praise. When you study the seven churches in Old Testament history, isn't it interesting that here, right here, we start at the very beginning of the creation of God. Where he's talking about the paradise of God. And we see Jesus there standing with seven stars in his right hand. And those seven stars uh, depict him as the creator of the Pleiades. The, the, the seven daughters of the king in the constellation Taurus there. You know that, right? We'll get to that in just a minute. So we see him in creation in this first uh, church here. We see him talking about 
paradise in this first church. We see him talking about eating the tree of life in this first church. So all these churches lay out over Old Testament history. And we will see that. Give God praise. See, God's word is awesome. You are the garden of God, the paradise of God. Don't, lose, don't be like Ephesus and lose your love. Don't be just doctrinally correct and, and love the name of Jesus and, and love holiness, hate evil. And try and false apostles. Friend, you need to have a love for Jesus. And don't let any of those things come in. That parable in Matthew 13 was talking about. The devil and the world and the flesh coming in and into that garden and causing it to be unfruitful. Because the Lord is in the midst of his garden temple and you are his garden temple. And he's walking in here right now to deliver you from your enemies. And to cleanse you from unholiness and to get rid of the leaven out of your life. Why? So that he can be revealed. He cannot be revealed as long as that old stuff is in the garden. So he's not adding to me today. He's taking away from me the stuff that's hindering his appearance in my life. And you or I are responsible individually to guard the garden, which is you. You are his husbandman. Now watch what he says to the church of Ephesus. He goes on and he tells them, praise God. I got to get back over there. I'm are y'all awake? <clears throat> he says this. Remember therefore from where thou art fallen and repent. Repent. Repentance is a kingdom word. Whenever the apostles like John or Jesus came forth and preached in the apostles, they said repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. You are the kingdom of God, and he's calling you to repentance. You are the place of his realm. You are the vassals of his kingdom. So, and, and by the way, we're in Revelation 2 for everybody that, you know, if you're just getting here, uh, if you want to turn there, you can follow me, please, okay? So he says, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent. See, he said they had fallen. They weren't doing Okay. He said to them, nevertheless. See, he's not willing to settle for anything but perfection in you. Some people say, well, I've come pretty far. I'm not what I used to be. That's good. But you're not what you're going to be. You can never say, I have arrived. You can never say, I've got it made. You can never say that I'm all I need to be. You can never get lukewarm and you can never get carnal. Because he's always coming to you and said, I want more from you. I expect more from you. So he said, they had fallen. He said, repent and do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy light, thy candlestick, lampstand. Only church he said that to. Because it's parallel to the first day of creation. It, these, the reason why he picked these seven churches is because they portray creation. Are you awake? But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. Let's talk about this. The Lord said that he hated the Nicolaitans. 
Here we have in the Word of God, God hating something. Have you ever heard people say, God, he's a God of love? He is a God of love. But do you know the Bible also says he hates, that God hates some things? And he comes to a church who hates. And he commends them for hating. See, there's some things you're supposed to hate. Listen, please. Anything that would take your love for Jesus away is something that you will hate or must hate. Anything that comes between you and your God, I don't care if it's a person, I don't care if it's money, I don't care if it's a job, I don't care what it is. If it's your husband or your wife, you will begin to hate that thing that has come and separated you from your God. Family members, friends, jobs, money, doesn't matter what it is. You will hate what has come between you and your God if you allowed that thing to become your God. And there are certain things that you are called upon by God to hate. One of them is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So if I'm to understand what I'm supposed to hate today, then I need to find out who the Nicolaitans were. Who are the Nicolaitans? And I'm telling you, I, I studied that word and studied that word and tried to find out who those Nicolaitans were for about 23 years, and I did not know who they were. And all the scholarship that I studied did not know who they were. All they could come up with was they were, the word Nicolaitan means this, the people rule. They know that about the word. Or to conquer the laity. Literally, conquering the people. Say with me, to conquer the people. Conquering the people. That's what the word means, okay? So scholar says, well, it means to conquer the people. So it was some sect or some group that conquered the people of God. Then they, they, did, they discovered that they thought, well, maybe it was Nicholas, one of the seven servants in the book of Acts, uh, you know, was with Stephen, that maybe they came from Nicholas there, all right? Uh, but I don't agree with that. But anyway, they, they came to the conclusion, yes, that it means that these people are the conqueror of the people of God. That's what the name means. And that they allowed immorality into their life. And said, it doesn't matter what you do in the flesh. If your spirit's saved, then it, you can sin and do whatever you want to do, and it's okay. That's another thing that they came up with. And it wasn't until about a year ago that I came across some documentation that explained the Nicolaitans. See, if you're hungry enough, if you want to understand, if you want to know... God will let you know who these people are. And so the Bible says, and let me read to you again, but this thou hast, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. Now let's find out who they are. In the book of Acts, turn there please, in Acts chapter 8. Acts 8. Are y'all about ready for this? See, you have a true priest over the garden of God, and his name is Jesus. But you have a counterfeit priesthood that's trying to rise up and take over the garden. A thief. Okay, Acts 8. Please turn there. 
you're going to find out who the Nicolaitans are today. In verse 13 of Acts 8, it says this, Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Say, Simon. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, so he's in Samaria. Simon lives in Samaria, and Simon is a Samaritan. Now the Samaritans of old, you're familiar with your Bible, aren't you? How that the Babylonian kingdom took people, are you with me, and planted them. After they took Israel captive, they planted people into the land of Israel. They were called Samaritans. Okay? Say Samaritans. These people were, had a mixture of religion in them. They claimed to be descendants of Israel. But really they were Gentiles. Okay? They claimed to be the seed of Jacob. But really they were Gentiles. Hello? And they worshipped Babylonian system of religion. And what they did in history is they took a little bit of the truth of God's word and they mixed it with their Babylonian worship. And it was a Samaritan worship. It was basically their false Babylonian religion mixed with the word of God, mixed with some truth. So it is to the Samaritans who worship God in mixture that the apostles find themselves in Acts chapter 8. Hello, somebody. And they come across a man who is Simon Magus. He is a priest in Samaria. His name literally means a priest. He is a priest in Samaria. He is a Samaritan priest. He's a man who is a Baal worshiper. Are you awake here? When they come across this man, this priest of Samaria, the Bible says, watch this, verse 14. Now when the apostles which were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they've been baptized right. Then lay their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. So now they've been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. Right? That's correct. And when Simon saw that through the laying on the hands of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost were given, he offered them money. He wants to be an apostle just like they are. So he offers them money. That he can lay hands on whoever he will and they'll get the Holy Ghost. Saying give me this power that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. He wants to purchase an apostleship. He desires an apostleship that he's not called to. He said I want that power too. Watch. But Peter said to him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, 
of this thy wickedness. And pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. What Peter's doing here, he's prophesying to this man. He said, I perceive that you're in the gall of bitterness. That means in the Old Testament days, you are a person who will bring in idolatry into God's garden. You are going to bring in mixture. You're going to bring in a false doctrine into God's church. Peter's prophesying to Simon Magus, the priest of Samaria over a Babylonian system. And he said, you're going to bring your idolatry into the church. Now watch this. Then answered Simon said, pray the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages and Samaritans. And the answer the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, All right, are you with me here? Okay, Simon Magus, a priest of Samaria over a Babylonian priesthood. He wants to be an apostle, but he's not an apostle. But from that day forward, he goes forth claiming to be an apostle. So the church of Ephesus, you have tried them that say they are apostles and are not. And that's exactly what Simon did. He went forth declaring that he was an apostle. But he was not. And he went forth bringing in his pagan idolatry into the church. Okay? Praise the Lord. Now, let me talk to you just a bit about him. Give you background on the Nicolaitans. Simon was called the father of heresy by church history. The father of heresy. All heresies in the New Testament... In the epistles and in the book of Revelation that Jesus is going to deal with spring from him in the modern age. He is the father of heresy. He goes back to Nimrod of Genesis 10. Are you with me here? This Simon Magus showed up in the year 45 AD in Rome. Okay. Okay. He was called Simon, this man was called Simon Peter or Simon Peter. When the Roman church today says that their church was established and founded by Simon Peter, it is not the Simon Peter, the apostle. The Simon Peter that established the church that is in Rome today or the universal church was Simon Pater, this Simon Magus that is here recorded in the Bible. He is the one that went to Rome and brought in idolatry, Babylonianism into the church. This Simon Pater or Simon Peter, a Pater in the Bible, a Pater was a pagan god. In the Bible, a Peter or a Peter is also the priest of the pagan gods. So when you say he is Simon Peter, you are saying that he is a priest of a pagan deity. And is this Simon, Pete, Simon who later called himself Simon Peter that embraced Christianity, called himself an apostle, was the father of heresy who went to Rome and the church in Rome called the Ch Catholic Church embraced his teaching. Hello, somebody. 
they embraced his teaching. And later, Simon Petter or Simon Magus, the false apostle, was buried in Vatican Hill. They say today that it was Simon Peter the Apostle that was buried in Vatican Hill. It was not Simon Peter the Apostle. Simon Peter the Apostle was a Jew. You don't bury a Jew in, in uh, the Roman territory. Simon Peter the Apostle never even went to Rome. So the Simon Peter that they claim is the apostle that's married in Vatican Hill is not Simon Peter the apostle, but is Simon Pator or Simon Peter, Simon Magus, the father of all heresies, the priest of Baal that went to Rome in 45 AD and his doctrines were embraced by that universal church. He's, are you with me here? And is buried in Vatican Hill. Give God some praise. When you go back in history and you study Nimrod, in the days of Nimrod, he is, way back in Genesis 10, he is really where all false doctrine and paganism were born. Okay? As you study history, you will see the prophets, all of the prophets of God, stood up against the Babylonian religion of Nimrod. You with me here? It was a counterfeit religion to the truth of God. And so the apostles, what Babylon did was mixed a little bit of God's truth with a paganism. And so all the apostles stood up in their day and they stood against the false doctrine of Babylon. As you go through history, you will come across a man in Numbers 22 by the name of Balaam. Balaam, the Bible said, was from Pator of Mesopotamia. He was, come on, from the Peter of Babylon. And there was a, 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 a temple there in Pathor of Babylon that he was over. He was the high priest of Babylonianism in his day. You remember this. This is when God's people are on their way to the promised land or to paradise, if you will, that this false priest Balaam stood up to resist the people of God. He was over the temple in Pator of Mesopotamia, Numbers 22. With me here. He was over a school of priests, false priests, Babylonian priests. He claimed to be the successor of Nimrod. Balaam, his name Balaam literally means the same thing that Nimrod's name means. It means to conquer the people. So when you talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans or the Nicolaitans, you're talking about people who follow Nimrod. Nimrod was the conqueror of the people. Balaam is just another name for Nimrod. Balaam means to conquer the people. So Balaam, come on somebody, that tried to curse, listen, that tried to curse, catch the word, curse the people of God was a Babylonian priest, a successor to Nimrod, and their names meant to conquer the people. Are you awake now? Praise God. Now, 
Simon Magus was a Babylonian priest. He was a worshiper of Nimrod. Come on, somebody. And so he's the one that brought in the Babylonian system of idolatry into the Roman church. Come on, from which you have the universal church of Catholicism. They embraced the doctrines there. And it came from Simon Magus. He's the one that took it there to Rome. They claim he was Simon Peter the Apostle, but he wasn't. He was Simon Tatar, the Simon Magus of the book of Acts. Give God some praise. And so Simon was a Nicolaitan. He was a priest of Baal who took it to Rome. He is a Simon Peter. The Roman church claims to be the father of their religion, not Simon Peter the Apostle. Are you awake right now? Give God some praise. And so Jesus says this. He said, you have this. You hate the, the doctrine of the, is it, say, help me, what does it say there specifically? The deeds of the Nicolaitans. You see, and Simon Peter corrupted the word of God, the Bible. He said basically this. That for you to keep the commandments of God would make you be a slave. You would become a slave if you kept the commandments of God. That it's bondage. So don't keep the commandments of God. Don't walk holy before him. Do what you want to do. That's the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And it was a very lascivious priesthood. A very carnal priesthood that had images. And had, was involved in incantations and idolatry and witchcraft and, and images. And he brought it all into Rome with him. Are you with me now? Praise the Lord. When you look at Roman history and church history, you will find that they had two supreme deities, Jupiter and Janus. Jupiter, the Peter of Zeus. And you have Janus, Peter. Are you getting this? Are you hearing this? Peter. They are false deities. Come from, are you here? Linked to Simon Magus. Now, when you talk about Janus Peter of Rome, Janus Peter had two faces. You ever heard somebody called your two-faced? He had two faces. One represented uh, barbarianism. The other represented civilization. And so Janus Peter was involved in trying to get people into civilization and away from barbarianism. But Janus Pitar was, come on, are you with me? A false deity. And the civilization that one of his faces represented was Babylonian civilization. Nimrod. Be a part of Nimrod. That's what one of the faces mean. So they were trying to get converts to Babylonian system of religion. That's why you've got two faces there. Hello, somebody. Janus Petar, they claimed that he had the keys of heaven. That he had the keys to the gates of heaven. You ever heard this saying? Peter's got the keys of the pearly gates. Well, it's not the apostle Peter that they, that, come on. The apostle Peter don't have the keys to the pearly gates. The Simon Magus or the Simon Petar is the one who claimed to have the keys to the gates of heaven. It is a pagan, adulterous, idolatrous system that came into the church and they called it Christianity. 
The cardinals today, the word cardinal leads, means a hinge. The Pope is the gate on the hinge. They claim that the Pope has power over heaven and earth. They claim that the Pope has power of the rising of the sun of the day. They claim that for him. He is the high priest of Baal. Give God some praise. Thank you, Jesus. God's an awesome God. So when you talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, you're talking about Catholicism today. And oh, oh, pastor, you shouldn't be calling names. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. I will expose it because it is false. It's a lie from hell. It is a mixture of false pagan idolatrous doctrine in the guise of Christianity. And the Simon Peter of the Roman church was Simon Nagus, the man that was controlled by demon powers and was a Babylonian priest. God is good. Now in closing. And if you want, if you want the documentation, this is in church history. If you want the documentation, go on your computer, on the internet, and type in Simon Magus. It'll bring you up to an internet site, and you can study all kinds of church history on Simon Magus. But I'm just giving you a little part so you'll understand who the Nicolaitans were. Lord said, you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans? He said, which thing I also hate. He hates it with a passion because it's a counterfeit church. Give God some praise. They claim today that the Pope has power over the universe. That he governs the universe. No. The Bible says in the hand of Jesus there are seven stars. And you remember last week I talked about the emperors. They had coins. And their coins had seven stars on them. Which they claim to have dominion and power over the universe. It is not the Pope that has power over the universe. It is. Come on somebody. It's not the emperors, the Roman emperors that had power of the universe. It's Jesus Christ. He's got the power over the universe. He's the one that has the seven daughters in his hand, the Pleiades. He's the one that has the seven daughters, the seven churches in his hands. Come on, are you with me today? And those churches are governed by God, by Jesus himself. It is he that has the keys of death, hell, and the grave. It is he that governs the universe. His name is Jesus He's the creator. And so what, what God is doing here, he's getting rid of a false priesthood so that the true priest, a Melchizedek priesthood, Jesus is the true priest. After the order of Melchizedek, he brings forth bread and wine. He offers salvation to you. He offers redemption by the blood to you today. He offers you the truth today. He offers you the true church today. But he says, get away from the false priest of your day. Give God praise. He says, I got the seven stars in my hand. Hallelujah, somebody. And what's awesome is the sun appears in the springtime in Taurus. Taurus, all the constellations are stationary. But the sun, the moon, the, come on, the sun, the moon, move through the constellations. And it's in springtime, the time of a garden, that this sun appears in Taurus. And he's trying to tell you that he's the one that brings in the garden. He's the one that restores paradise. He's the one that is over the garden of God. He's the true priest. 
will allow you access into the gate of paradise. He said, I'm the way back into paradise. You can't get there through Simon Magus. You can't get there through Balaam. You can't get there through Nimrod. I am the one who has the key to the gate. I'm the one who governs the universe. And that constellation associated with Taurus and the Pleiades that is a commentary on it is Orion. And Orion is seen as the light of the world. He said, I've got the seven stars in my hand. Orion's the light of the world. His, his sword has the head of a lamb. Come on, somebody. The head and body of a lamb. And in his left hand, Orion has the head and the skin of a roaring lion. It is Jesus as the Lamb of God who died the finished work that defeated the devil he's got his hand his head in his left hand with his skin it's based on the blood that he's brought in the redemption and he is the light of the world come on somebody he is the true Orion and then that other constellation that gives a commentary on Taurus is the river say the river and out of a church out of a temple by the time you get to the end of the book of Revelation based on the finished work that church that has nevertheless in it that's got stuff in it by the end of the book out of that church is flowing a river pure and clean that temple garden of God has a river flowing in its midst and there are trees of the garden on either side producing fruit. That's the church, the people of the living God. Right now she's got stuff in her. Right now she's got some nevertheless, nevertheless in her. I have some nevertheless in me. Every one of you have nevertheless in you. We all have nevertheless. But what's so awesome is this. Is that what the Bible says about Jesus to the church in Ephesus is what will get the job done. It's what will take care of the nevertheless. When I read about nevertheless, I can still rejoice because that's not the end of the book. Because by the time you get to the end of the book, it's a pure river flowing out of the city of God, the temple of God, with all beautiful, precious fruit in that garden. And also connected to that, not only is Orion in the river, but another one is the sheep, is the sheep goat. Uh, the shepherd carrying the sheep goat who's just given birth to young young sheep, uh, young goats, and his heel is wounded. So that constellation is teaching you of the redemption and dominion of Jesus Christ. And he is in the midst of his garden. Are you here, are you here today? I've got some nevertheless in me, but that's not the end of the book, praise God. It's the finished work. It's the blood that takes care of my problem.